Well, we've got Hebrews 11 in front of us here, and uh, here we have, as I would put it, an account of how God sees people, his perception of other people. And it's, uh, from that point of view, a really invaluable document here, this uh, analysis uh, from God of how he sees people. And we look at our own lives and we analyse ourselves naturally and uh, consciously and unconsciously um, as we think about the death of the Lord Jesus. And at times, if one's realistic, we get confused because we see in ourselves a genuine love for God and spirituality and yet so much failure and so much weakness and so much dysfunction um, we also see in others this even clearer that we see them on one hand uh, brethren and sisters uh, believing and acting well and then in other aspects of their lives perhaps uh, aspects that concern us uh, they act extremely badly and we're sort of left somewhat confused as to really how God is going to judge us and yet there should be no confusion because the whole essence of the gospel is that we have been counted right and that we are right before God now this doesn't mean of course that he turns a blind eye that he's some soft uh, soft old uncle who kind of looks uh, half blindly at our weak side not at all he counts we who are sinners as right because we are in Christ now one feature of nearly all these people here in Hebrews Hebrews 11 is that these people were weak in some way and yet during that time of weakness there was some spark of spirituality some spark of faith and it's as if God pounces on that and records that here in Hebrews 11 as an evidence that they are in fact faithful people so with so many of these examples that are now brought before us in fact I would argue if we had time that actually all these people here uh, the incidents that are being brought before us from their lives are actually from their times of weakness but within that weakness God perceived something positive, something spiritual now I can only really show what I mean by, um, <clears throat> by example so let's start in verse 8 with Abraham by faith Abraham when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive an inheritance obeyed and he went out not knowing whither he went implication is that there's Abraham sitting in Ur or Abraham I should say he's sitting in Ur and uh, he's told hey get up leave and go to, go to Canaan he says oh sure thing I'll just uh, be going straight away with my wonderful faith believing that uh, you'll take me there that's the impression you get from that statement if you go back to Genesis Genesis 11 this is not the case at all um, <clears throat> you see in chapter 12 verse 1 okay Genesis 12 verse 1 now the Lord had said unto Abraham and note that tense get out of your country and from your kindred and from your father's house unto a land that I will show you if you go back to chapter 11 verse uh, 31 Terah, that's Abraham's father Terah took Abraham his son and Lot and Sarai his daughter-in-law and they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan and they came under Haran and dwelt there and Terah dies in Haran and then uh, Abraham goes forward from Haran to, to Canaan but God had said to Abraham when he was in Ur leave your country, leave Ur 
and leave your family, your kindred, and your father's family, and go to a land that I will show you. And yet it seems he did not do that immediately. Terah took Abraham, that's his father, took hold of Abraham and Abraham's wife, Sarai, and said, like, we're moving. Now, why exactly he did that, we don't know. There is a, an argument from uh, secular history that at this time there was a, a great invasion of Ur uh, that was uh, preceded by a, a series of kind of a smaller attacks on the city. And it could be that Tirar figured that uh, this, this city is going to fall, we're going to be overrun. Okay, let's go. Let's just get out of here, let's, let's go to Haven. But look, Abraham had been told to leave Tirar. This is part of the command to him, not just to go to another country, not just to go to Canaan, but to leave his father's family, uh, to leave his kindred, to leave his country, and to go to Canaan. But it seems he didn't do that immediately. There was some situation that arose, and therefore Tirah, his father, got hold of him. He seems pretty passive in this, and his wife Sarai, and said, look, we're all going as a family. We're getting out of here, and we're relocating somewhere else. Um, And they didn't carry on on the journey to Canaan. They stayed in Haran, and it seems that you can work out they were in Haran for quite a few years before actually uh, Abraham moves on towards Canaan. But here in Hebrews 11 verse 8, the implication is that as soon as God called Abraham, he got up and left her, no questions asked. It's not the case. His faith that he surely had, I mean it says here in Hebrews 11, that he did do this, uh, this act of obedience by faith, he did this, I think, in, uh, in weakness. He did believe, but it actually needed the hand of providence to jog him along. Maybe just some problem there in Ur, uh, some reason why his father wanted to, to get out of there. All this was used by God uh, to kind of confirm Abraham's perhaps weak faith. So actually the whole thing that Paul makes about Abraham was counted righteous. In fact, it starts pretty well from the first introduction that you get to Abraham here in Genesis 11 and 12. That he's sort of counted as more uh, responsive than he actually is. Now, <clears throat> verse 7 of Hebrews 11, and, and you may think this one is rather, rather pushing it, but I'll put it to you. Verse 7, by faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, was moved with fear and prepared an ark to the saving of his house by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Now, thinking that through, particularly how righteousness which is by faith is used in the New Testament, and if Paul didn't have anything to do with uh, writing that here in Hebrews 11.7, that's uh, unusual, because that is a, a very Pauline phrase, but that's, uh, that's just by, by the way. Um, it's not true, therefore, reading this carefully, that Noah was this righteous, wonderful guy, and God said, well, you're so good, uh, I'm going to save you. Of course, that's true in a sense. Genesis uh, could imply that. But it would seem that he was moved with fear, realising if I don't do something, I also am going to die. 
and I'm also going to share in this judgment. And so righteousness was imputed to him by his faith. Not that he was himself, maybe, such a righteous guy, but because he recognised his sinfulness and the justness of the judgment that was coming upon him and upon the world, he threw himself upon God and saw that there was a way out, and he believed in that way out. And so he was counted as righteous because of his faith. And I do sort of slightly wonder the way that as soon as the flood's over, he gets really blind drunk. I, I mean, so drunk that, you know, he does what, what he does. Uh, you know, I sort of slightly wonder whether that was... Um, uh, a pattern of behaviour, a coping mechanism that he'd had uh, before the flood. I don't know. Uh, let's leave that to chew on. But I just wonder here, this faith of Noah was faith really in God's grace to him. Not, not uh, just because he was such a good guy. He was fearful of his own condemnation. He saw that his family needed saving. And he did. And he therefore had righteousness counted to him. Maybe a clearer example, verse 11. Through faith, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Now, what happened when the angel comes and says that uh, she's going to have a child? She does not believe. She laughs. And she even denies it. Said, you laugh. No, I didn't. Oh, whoops, it's an angel. Oh, <laughs> oh dear. Um, now, Sarah had uh, a number of spiritual problems, shall we say, relating to her barrenness. Um, even when she wants him to, she wants Abraham to, to have children by her slave girl. It says in Genesis 16, verse 2, that Abraham hearkened to the voice of Sarai, rather like Adam hearkened to the voice of Eve. And... Um, she seems to have recognised the error when she comments to Abraham very uh, bitterly in chapter 16, verse 5, My wrong be upon you. The Lord has restrained me from bearing. Chapter 16, verse 2. There's a bitterness here. And when she kicks Hagar out, I mean, this is just awful behaviour. Sarah just persecuted and abused Hagar. She fled. Hagar fled from her face. Chapter 16, verse 6. And as I say in chapter 18, verse 15, she laughs at the promise but that she is going to have a child. But here we're told that she judged God as faithful, who had promised. Within all that bitterness, within all that anger, that obsession about her own barrenness, which was, you know, understandable in a sense... Within all that, within all that awful behaviour towards Hagar, getting her husband to basically sleep with another woman just so she could kind of claim that, you know, this was her kid, her point-blank disbelief of the angel, even laughing and mocking, somewhere in all there, in all that, there was faith. And God perceived that, and all those years later, when he inspired Hebrews 11 to be written, Right down to our present day, God is saying, you know, in the middle of all that, there was faith. And I saw that faith, 
and I just got to record that for all of you to see. I noticed faith in her. Now, we look at people's behaviour, look at our own behaviour at times, and it, it seems so far off from what it should be. And there are times, and very often, we find ourselves feeling, or tempted to feel anyway, this so-called brother or sister is simply not a Christian because of their behaviour. But underneath all that behaviour, in Sarah's case, the anger, the bitterness, the cynicism, the disbelief in God's word, there was somewhere a corn of faith. Let's go on, chapter 11, verse 20. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Wait a minute. Genesis 27 doesn't exactly... Uh, paint Isaac in that positive light. We're told in chapter 25, Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Um, <clears throat> so it's all rather carnal there. His attitude to the sons was not, it seems, of faith. It was just that Esau was pretty well the, the favourite because he uh, he brought him nice food. Esau was evidently the man of the flesh, whilst Jacob was, at least potentially, the man of the spirit, and yet Isaac clearly preferred Esau. He chose to live in Gerar, chapter 26, verse 6, which is right on the border of Egypt, as close as he could get to the world, without crossing the line, as it were. And he thought nothing of denying his marriage to Rebekah, chapter 26 again, verse 7, just to save his own skin. Uh, chapter 27 of Genesis emphasizes in 5 and 6 that Esau was his son, but Jacob was Rebekah's son. And so Jacob comes to Isaac, trying to deceive him, to get the birthright, uh, the blessing out of him, and he gives him wine to drink, and he drinks it. This is chapter 27 of Genesis, verse 25. And he drinks that wine just before giving the blessing. Now look, he... <laughs> You know why Jacob gave Isaac wine to drink and then makes out that he's Esau and tries to get the blessing? Now, uh, you know, he was slightly under the influence of alcohol. What does it say here, back in Hebrews? Verse 20 of chapter 11. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. By faith. Look, wait a minute, he, he had been drinking. Right? That's what the record says in Genesis. Uh, way back when the children were born God had said the elder shall serve the younger but he just didn't want to pay any attention to that he wanted to give the blessing to, uh, to Esau, to, to the eldest he didn't accept, obviously Isaac didn't accept the sale of the birthright and yet it would seem that God, God did that God did accept it in, in fact, oddly enough, here in Hebrews you go over to chapter 12, 16 and 17 um, where Esau is uh, described there as uh, having sold his, his birthright and was rejected and could find no way to, to change the mind of Isaac um, because he was a, a type really of, of the rejected of the last day so God accepted that the, the sale of the birthright I think was accepted by God I think that's what Hebrews 12, 16 and 17 are implying but Esau didn't accept that now, Esau, sorry, Isaac then is not exactly presented as very spiritually strong, I would not say. 
he had marriage problems, he, uh, he liked the good life, he didn't really pay a lot of attention to what God had said about uh, the elder serving the younger. He was close to, to Egypt, far too close to Egypt. He was not particularly loyal to his wife. And yet, by faith, despite being slightly somewhat under the influence of alcohol, there was an element of faith in his blessing of Jacob and Esau. God saw through all that surface level stuff. And man, not all of it was surface level. Uh, this time is running away. So uh, 21, actually that's your homework. By faith Jacob blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning upon the top of his, his staff. Uh, there's an element of weakness uh, there at that time, but... Um, that's your homework. In fact, your homework is to go through all these characters in Hebrews 11 and try and work out what element of weakness was going on in their lives at the time that these incidents are, are picked up. Okay, verse 27. It's a very clear one. By faith, Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. But wait a minute. Exodus 2, 14 and 15. Moses fled Egypt, fearing the wrath of the king. Now, did he fear the wrath of the king, or didn't he? Exodus 2 says he, he did. That's why he ran away. Hebrews 11.27 says that he left Egypt by faith, but not scared of Pharaoh. Now, in all human action, particularly in the sort of situation that Moses suddenly found himself in there in the court of Pharaoh, uh, there, there is almost no such thing, I think, as pure motive. Uh, I, I think our motives are so hopelessly mixed. When you look at your own motives, if you're really honest, uh, it's very difficult to, to unravel all these strands, let alone if you start looking at the behavior of other people and you start to foolishly imagine what their motives might be. I mean, you're all over the place. And yet, in those mixed, within those mixed motives and feelings and emotions within Moses, there was... An element to which he forsook Egypt, not actually frightened of the wrath of the king, but looking forward to this bigger purpose that God, he believed, would have with him to save his people somehow one day. And so that is a, a tremendous comfort, I think. It's a comfort to us when I think we're too hard on ourselves and we think that, uh, you know, what are my motives? What have I done? also mixed up, the strands are so intertwined, I don't have pure motives in this decision or that decision okay, so you don't but God is very positive to us and he looks at the positive and he alone unravels and is able to unravel all the strands of human motivation and when it comes to other people and we think, you know, why is this guy coming to the meeting? Why does she even break bread when she's doing this, that, or the other? Okay, you don't know the motive ultimately, and you're foolish, very foolish, to try to guess it. But just take comfort in this, that God goes through those different strands of human motivation, and he loves to pick on the strand that is to do with faith in him. 
Now, this, as I say, does not mean that God is naive, nor that we should be naive. And, you know, there's some people who are willfully naive. It's their way of coping with life, to simply just live in Alice in Wonderland. And uh, that that's not how we should live. And, and I'm not uh, recommending that we try to live like that. But what I am saying is that we should just be aware that God perceives very positively. It's like he is searching for spirituality, and he's very, very sensitive to it. And when he sees it, it's like he goes, wow, that's that's great. Now, going on in uh, Hebrews 11:27, it says that he endured, Moses endured, as if seeing the God who is invisible. He endured, it's this word for patience or endurance. Uh, and, and yet he didn't actually have, I wouldn't say, that endurance that keeps on keeping on, because there were times that he failed. I mean, his whole time in the, the 40 years he spent with uh, Spence in the wilderness was not particularly smart, I mean, after he leaves Egypt. I mean, he didn't circumcise his sons. God even tried to kill him because of that. There were terrible moments of failure and periods of failure in his life. And yet God counted him in the end as having endured. It's like I'm sure you know from your own uh, ecclesial experience, people who basically apparently have not lived that smart a life. They've done this, they've done that, had a kid by this bloke, and then they then they got married to the other bloke, and then they got divorced and married the other bloke, and had, uh, had a kid by his, uh, his brother. Or, you know, some people live their lives and you think, oh my goodness. And yet the point is, when you look at some of those people's lives, at the end of it all, they've endured and they've run the race to the end. And that's the amazing thing. It's another one in Hebrews 11:28. Through faith, he kept the Passover. Moses had faith uh, in the Passover uh, and the sprinkling, sprinkling of blood, verse 29, by faith, and I assume this means by Moses' faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land. But Moses' faith was not exactly solid. When they actually get up to the Red Sea, and this is in Exodus uh, 14, verse 15, when they actually have left Egypt and they come to the actual uh, Red Sea, and there's the, the dust of the Egyptian chariots getting closer and closer as they close in on them, and they're in a dead end with their backs to the sea, Moses is really frightened. He really is. And he does not have a strong faith. He actually is angry with God. That's how weak his faith is in verse 11. uh, That the people complained of Moses. Um, And then God says to Moses, verse 15, Why do you, singular Moses, cry unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. Why do you cry to me, Moses? I, I see that as some sort of crisis in Moses, really. Um, that he was scared, really. Simple as that. And he's almost rebuked, well he is rebuked. Why do you, singular, cry to me? He's talking, God's talking to Moses. Go and tell the people of Israel to go forward. So then, 
God counted him as if he had great faith. And it all sounds in Hebrews 11 like it was all solid and wonderful. But, you know, it went up and down. Inevitably. It did. Absolutely inevitably. Um, Okay, running on now. Hebrews 11.31 Our friend Rahab. By faith the harlot Rahab. And let's get it right. She was a prostitute, not a... uh, not running bed and breakfast. Well, it sort of was bed and breakfast, but um, uh, yeah, she was a prostitute. Let's get it right. This woman was a hooker. By faith, the, the harlot Rahab did not perish with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. And received, the Greek word there really means she had received the message of the spies with peace. Now, there's no comment on the fact this woman was a prostitute, because that's who she was. And that's why these spies ran in there, thinking, oh yeah, finally, here's a place we can quickly just run in here, and maybe we won't get chased in here. Uh, And, you know, she sort of said, who are you? And they said, eventually she must have figured from their accent and all that who they really were, and eventually they told her the truth, and she believed. But there's no record that she actually... uh, close the business there's no mention in Joshua or here of of her repentance and she actually already seemed to know quite a bit about Israel so it seems from the the record of her talking to the spies and where did she get that from? from her travelling clients who had travelled and heard about all this and whilst they were having a chat with her about uh, some other matters, let's say, that they came out with all this stuff about the God of Israel, and she thought, wow, I believe that. Wow, I believe in this God of Israel. But, (laughs) wait a minute, she's a prostitute, right? Let's just get that right and clear. And yet God focused on that woman's faith. You know, who knows why she had to be a prostitute? Most prostitutes don't do it because they uh, like it, but because... No, situation forces them into it. Then, of course, you've got, uh, you've got Samson. He talks about the faith of Samson in verse 32. Well, if anyone uh, had a mixture of faith and, uh, let's say, uh, carnality, it was Samson. And all those incidents of his supposed faith. I mean, it's not supposed faith. I shouldn't have said that. It is real faith. But, I mean, it's mixed with terribly mixed motives. Yeah, he uses these women to uh, get at the Philistines, but he obviously loved them. Um, uh, and his relationship with them in that sense was, was wrong. Now, there's another thing in verse 38, which is almost summarizing all these different people of faith. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Now this is quoting from two places in the Old Testament, right out of the Septuagint. And you may like to write them down. One is Judges 6 verse 2. The children of Israel were so frightened that they made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. And at that time they were totally lacking, it seems, or seriously lacking in faith in in God. The other one is 1 Samuel 13 verse 6 1 Samuel 13 verse 6 which is talking about when the Philistines uh, attacked the Israelites and how scared they were and they hid in the dens and in the mountains and the caves and in the strongholds so in both those cases when biblically 
Israel are in deserts, mountains, dens and caves of the earth Judges 6.2, 1 Samuel 13 verse 6 this is when they're there out of weakness and lack of faith but within that weakness and lack of faith there was some faith and God zooms in on that and picks up on it now my time is, uh, my time is gone but you've got your homework cut out, I can tell you, with all these other characters here in, in Hebrews 11. All these incidents, I should say, where these people did all these things um, amidst their own personal weakness, and yet God focused in on their faith. Now this should radically transform how we look at others, how we perceive others, uh, and also it should give us some comfort and strength as to how God looks at us that he sees us so positively and this is how we ought to be seeing each other as I say I'm not exhorting you to naivety to uh, you know Alice in Wonderland kind of wandering around in, in, in zombie land when we live in, in a world of failure and nastiness and, and wickedness not at all but we are to take comfort that God loves faith and there is a passage in Jeremiah where God sort of tells Jeremiah to run around the city squares look here, look there and just see if there's even one man that searches for me and God therefore is in search of man and we might think but I'm in search of God I have been in search of God I've searched for him I've searched for the true God etc yes you have I have, you have but God, you know, is also in search of man and that is why when we meet when we meet when our search for him and his search for us meets, that is that click between God and man and, and that is uh, that the synergy in that is, uh, is amazing that is the birth of the spirit that is the life and the way of the spirit and it is all of, of his grace and of his eagerness to see something in us that is of him.